Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wilderness Medicine Updates, the show for providers at the edges. Today, I'm going to start with a case. A 22-year-old man texted goodbye to his friends and disappeared. He was found the following morning on a pier in Toronto with a bottle of pills next to him. He was unresponsive and had clearly coughed up blood. His downtime was unknown. When EMTs arrived, he had no palpable pulse. They started CPR and made the quick 900-meter drive to the local emergency department, a large trauma center. There, he was intubated and treated with traditional rewarming techniques, chest and bladder lavage. His initial core temperature was 20.8 degrees Celsius. Interestingly, his initial potassium level returned at just 7 millimoles per liter, so the decision was made to attempt rewarming on bypass. He had received about 60 minutes of CPR at that point and remained profoundly hypothermic. He was placed on bypass, and when his core temperature climbed above 28 degrees, he was shocked at 200 joules and his heart easily restarted into a sinus rhythm. He had difficulty coming off bypass. He developed disseminated intervascular congestion and bled profusely from his chest and chest tube incisions. He was massively transfused 50 units of red cells, 30 units of plasma, and 20 units of cryoprecipitate over two days. Pulmonary edema crippled attempts to ventilate him, and he spent two days on venovenous ECMO. Ultimately, he was hard to wean from the ventilator and spent days on high-frequency ventilation through a tracheostomy. He lost half his body weight and sustained neurological and muscular damage limiting the use of his hands. He has since recovered almost all his function and independence. He overcame the suicidal state that induced him to take an overdose, and he's glad to have survived. This is the story of Tayab Jafar, a university student at Queen's University in Oakville, Canada, who provided his story to the Toronto Star. It begs the question, if you were the provider evaluating this patient in the field, if you had received him in the emergency department, would you have proceeded with resuscitation? If he had not survived, all those procedures, the bypass, the ECMO, the massive transfusion, these would have been a tremendous use of resources. When patients survive to a good neurological outcome, it's justified. But if they're beyond treatment, it's a waste and a risk to treating providers. So how do we decide? That's what we're going to talk about today, the HOPE score, which stands for Hypothermia Outcome Prediction After Extracorporeal Life Support for Hypothermic Cardiac Arrest Patients. We'll stick with HOPE. Think about the numbers. 22-year-old male with unknown downtime, absent vitals. CPR for an hour, core temperature 20.8 degrees C, potassium of 7. What do you think his chance of survival is? The HOPE score says 52%. Now, hypothermia deaths in the U.S. are reasonably common around 1,500 people per year. And the majority of these are going to be in urban areas. They're going to be the homeless, the intoxicated, the suicidal. But accidental hypothermia accounts for a number of these deaths as well. There's a great review on the basics of hypothermia staging and management from Steve over at WildEM podcast number six. And I'll link to that over in the show notes. And if, you, if you're not familiar with the basics of hypothermia care, I suggest that you take a look at that before we go further. It's also worth taking a look at the clinical practice guideline from the Wilderness Medicine Society for the prevention and treatment of hypothermia, and I'll link to that as well. 
What's relevant to this discussion is that below about 32 degrees Celsius, shivering thermogenesis becomes less effective in a hypothermic patient. So when we're cold stressed, mildly hypothermic, we shiver and we turn calories into heat. But below 32 degrees, that starts to wane. And the only way to raise body temperature is to add heat back. Below 28 degrees Celsius, the profoundly hypothermic patients are unconscious and may appear to have absent vital signs. Now, the best way to treat profound hypothermia is with extracorporeal life support. What is that? We're talking about putting a patient on cardiopulmonary bypass in an operating room or placing them on veno-arterial ECMO. Both of these strategies are only possible in high-resource centers, and both of them are very invasive and involve removing the blood from the body, circulating it through a warmer, and passing it back into the body. And they're associated with significant complications and are resource-intensive. So, it's important that before treating the profoundly hypothermic patient that we ask whether they are even capable of being resuscitated. Before the development of the HOPE score, serum potassium levels were used to prognosticate outcomes, thinking that they were a sign of cellular death. Generally speaking, a serum potassium level greater than 12 millimoles per liter was used for non-avalanche victims to say, hey, we're not going to go any further with this, and a level of greater than 8 millimoles per liter was used in avalanche victims, with that lower limit being used because avalanche victims are more susceptible to trauma and also to asphyxia. And we'll get into this in another podcast when we talk about the avalife pathway. It's important to evaluate hypothermic avalanche resuscitation patients on the basis of whether or not they have a patent airway when they're found buried, because those patients who are found without a patent airway are likely to have died of asphyxia before becoming hypothermic. There are also higher rates of traumatic injury in avalanche victims, which can limit their survival as well. So traditionally, we used a lower level of 8 for avalanche victims and a higher level of 12 for non-avalanche victims. But the use of potassium to prognosticate who's going to survive on extracorporeal life support was not well supported by the literature and was probably subject to a bunch of different confounders because it wasn't ever prospectively studied effectively. So the goal of the HOPE study was to hypothesize that it's possible to come up with a better prognostication tool that could depend on a host of factors. Namely, how was the patient cooled and how fast were they cooled? Whether or not their cardiac arrest was witnessed? What was their core temperature at the time that they presented? What was the duration of their CPR before going on to bypass? And how were they rewarmed? So we're going to talk about two studies today, and I'm going to breeze through both of them. And they're both performed by the same group. Both groups were led by Mathieu Pasquier, and this is a group of hospitals largely out of Switzerland, particularly in the derivation group. Because severe, severe hypothermia is a relatively uncommon instance, it's very hard to conduct a prospective study. So this group collected a number of cases that were previously published in the literature as part of case series or you know, collective reviews. They didn't use individual case reports because there's a high risk of bias in those cases. Essentially, you tend to report the cases that are extraordinary recoveries, and you don't report the people who don't survive. And they pulled from that and collected age, sex, mechanism of hypothermia, namely, is this asphyxia or non-asphyxia related? And this is important because you need to get cold before you become hypoxic if you want to survive long term. So they're non-asphyxia related Causes were immersion in water, head still above water, and exposure, like being out in the cold. And then asphyxia-related causes were submersion and avalanche burial. 
Then they also looked at core temperature at the time of admission, whether their cardiac arrest was witnessed, the duration of their CPR until extracorporeal life support, what kind of extracorporeal life support they received, and their initial cardiac arrest rhythm when they arrived to hospital admission. Are they in PEA? Are they in a profound bradycardia, VFib, VTAC, what have you? Their primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge. Secondary outcomes were favorable neurological outcomes at discharge. And then they did some fancy statistics and basically said, hey, we've hypothesized that all of these things might contribute to survival. We're going to put them all together until we have an equation that gives us the best possible prediction of survival to hospital discharge. What were their results? They included 237 patients from literature search and also added 49 from hospital data that was previously unpublished for a total of 286 patients. 106 survived, 180 died. So the overall survival rate was 37%. However, there was a good neurological outcome in 84% of those survivors. The variables that were included in the final model that were considered detrimental were male gender, an asphyxia-related mechanism, elevated age, elevated serum potassium, longer duration of CPR, and lower core body temperature. The equation that they derived is included in the paper, but it's not worth reviewing here. If you want to be able to use and to calculate using the HOPE score, you can go to hypothermiascore.org, and you can freely use this tool, and it will give you predictive outcomes on the basis of these variables. When they applied the score that they derived to the patients in the derivation study, warning stats, the receiver operating area under the curve was 0.895 compared to 0.774 for potassium alone. And the higher that number gets to 1, the better it is at predicting outcomes. Now, they downgraded their number a little bit. They came closer to like 0.83 once they did statistics to account for the optimism that's usually present in a derivation study. Um, But basically, this says that their score outperforms using potassium alone. And specifically, when they used the HOPE score, it resulted in fewer patients who were forecast to live who then died false positives, than using a potassium of less than 12. Potassium versus HOPE score had equal false negative rates, so they didn't predict that anyone would die who eventually survived. So what this score is doing when they're using it in the derivation group is it's taking some patients who would have been resuscitated and saying, don't resuscitate those patients, we're going to save a bunch of resources, but they don't miss any possible saves. So this initial study, you know, they have a long, they have a strong likelihood of selection bias. That's a problem using retrospective case reports of things that are generally rare. We only tend to report good things, or at least we lean that way. And they specifically aren't able to analyze any patients that weren't sub- selected for extracorporeal life support who came into a hospital profoundly hypothermic and were just allowed to die. Um, so their study likely overestimates survival rates using the HOPE score. And also, any derivation study, whatever model they come up with, is going to fit their own data better than the data at large, because that's how it was derived. So, thankfully, they conducted a so-called external validation of their study as well. This is the same author group as the HOPE score, and they aim to validate their score by applying it to a new group of patients and making sure it still works. So they found more patients by inviting authors of studies identified in the original literature review, but that they didn't use in the derivation. And they also performed an updated literature search and found new available hospital data by adding sites in Bern, Switzerland, Poland, and Grenoble. 
So they ID'd the studies, as I mentioned. They collected the needed variables to calculate the HOPE scores. As with the original study, they looked at survival to hospital discharge and also survival with a favorable neurological outcome. And they compared the characteristics of both the derivation and validation cohort using statistically complex but appropriate methods, and essentially they're reasonably similar. So what did they find in their validation study. They collected 122 additional patients with profound hypothermia who were placed on extracorporeal life support. Compared to the first study, the validation cohort was older and had fewer asphyxia-linked mechanisms, but only really the age was significantly different between the two populations. 51 of 122 survived, that's 41.8%, and pooled survival of the two studies was 42%. 76% of patients in the validation study had a good neurological outcome. So this further reiterates that appropriately identified patients have the potential to survive a seemingly devastating physiologic state. The average HOPE scores and the standard deviation thereof didn't differ significantly between the two groups. When they looked at the performance of the test in the validation group, the AUC, the operating characteristic, was 0.825, which was statistically similar to the derivation group slightly lower, but similar to what they had predicted for their, uh, shall we say, lower optimism level. In the validation group, the sensitivity was actually not as good. So they missed one patient who would have been predicted to not survive, but who did survive. The negative predictive value was pretty darn good at 97%, but not 100% because of that case. The specificity of the test using a cutoff of 0.1 on the HOPE score to say, hey, below that, don't resuscitate, was similar, 48% compared to 50% in the derivation. So both agree that if HOPE says you should be resuscitated, it's right 50% of the time. Now, the one case that was missed was a child who was a seven-year-old boy who survived with a perfect neurological outcome to discharge after he was submerged in a freezing cold river He had a CPR duration of 71 minutes, a core temp of 27.5, and a potassium of 6.6, which hope would give a survival probability of 4%. So he ultimately did survive, had a good neurological outcome. And so the authors conclude that the score should be used with caution in pediatric patients. Now, what can we conclude from both of these studies? Essentially, The survival to good neurological outcome in patients who are successfully resuscitated from profound hypothermia using extracorporeal warming is quite high, so we don't want to miss any patients who could benefit from this. When we use the suggested HOPE score cutoff of 0.1, or a 10% predicted chance of survival, it will prevent a lot of futile attempts at rewarming. If HOPE had been used, 27% of patients who were rewarmed would not have been and that would have saved significant resources and risks to staff. The HOPE score doesn't have to be used with a cutoff of 0.1 or 10% probability, and instead can be used to inform decision-making, just using it as a sheer probability. However, the test characteristics of this cutoff make it reasonable to avoid ruling out potential adult survivors, but we should use it with caution in pediatric patients. It could also potentially be used as a triage tool if there are more hypothermic patients who arrive to a warming center than can be rewarmed. The limits of the studies overall, again, big time risk of selection bias. If you only look at people who are put on rewarming, 
We're missing the people who were deemed hopeless, and so this score still likely overestimates survival. Overall, that's okay, because we're probably not missing people that we could be rewarming if we're using this score. A prospective validation study would be the gold seal of approval, but it would require a heroic effort given the overall paucity of patients that are available for this kind of study. It would need to be an essentially global effort at ECMO centers to recruit enough patients. Let's talk about applications. For field use, it's worth noting that a potassium greater than 12 is still predictive of no survival regardless of the hope score. So that is something that could potentially be used in the field. I recognize that most outfits are not going to be able to derive a point-of-care potassium in the field. However, if we're thinking about an outlying hospital that is not an ECMO center or not a center that has extracorporeal life support, if you're the treating provider who receives a patient in that center profoundly hypothermic and you're trying to decide whether or not to transfer them, Potassium, hope score, both of those are useful to you. Additionally, it's worth noting that the score asks for a core body temperature. It is hard to get an esophageal temperature or a rectal temperature on a patient in the field. I do know that it is possible. AJ Wheeler and the Teton County Search and Rescue, Jenny Lake Rangers, they have some kind of probe that they've rigged up using a cover over like a digital thermometer off Amazon that can be used to take a esophageal temperature, but there's not a good commercially available scalable technique for this. That limits the application of this score in the field. Additionally, in both of these studies, the CPR duration mean was 120 and 107 minutes respectively, with a maximum of 169 minutes in one case which suggests that the distance from an ECMO center was low. So that means that if you have a profoundly hypothermic patient with prolonged extrication and transport necessary, survival is likely to be lower. We don't actually really know how to triage those patients. We might consider using this score kind of on an interim basis to say, hey, should we proceed? But that assumes that you're able to get that core temperature and the potassium. Finally, asphyxia-related events were 51% in the derivation and 38% in the validation groups. But avalanche victims were 18% and 4% respectively. So the applicability of the HOPE score to this group is less clear. Sure, they're pooled in here, but as I mentioned earlier, there are a number of different factors that go into the resuscitation of avalanche patients. The rate of death due to trauma is likely higher in this group of patients. And so is asphyxia if they were not found with an open airway. So the HOPE score is likely to overestimate the survival of avalanche victims overall. And that's important if you're providing medical direction, either remotely to a remote facility that has received one of these patients or to groups in the field. We need to understand the potential risks and benefits of prolonged extrication, intermittent CPR, the difficulties of providing ongoing care when extricating these profoundly hypothermic patients who are likely to have a lower rate of survival than predicted by this score. Whew. So, that was a lot of stats. Let's break this down to the third grade level. People who are really cold, they don't shiver anymore. We gotta warm them up. The best way to do that is to take their blood out of their body, warm it up, and stick it back in there. But that's hard and it takes a lot of resources. If their potassium level is really high, they're probably dead. 
but that's not well studied and we do actually have a better technique for figuring out who we should use heroic techniques on. The hope score derived and validated an easily applicable calculation that's available to you on hypothermiascore.org and this is probably the best tool that we have to decide whether our profoundly hypothermic patients arriving to a capable center should be rewarmed. If you're in the field, if you're at an outlying facility, if you're in Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, further away from ECMO centers and bypass centers, this is probably still a bit of a pipe dream, and we need to give hard thought to who we're trying to resuscitate. Patients who have a non-asphyxiative mechanism, who got cold before they stopped breathing, are much more likely to survive, and pediatric patients should be treated with caution when we're applying the HOPE score. They have a good chance of survival in pretty astonishing circumstances. So that's all for today. Thanks for listening. Give us a shout out on iTunes. Rate the podcast. Share it with your friends, with your fellow residents, with your wilderness medicine interest group. We appreciate all of the downloads and feedback that we've been getting. And I look forward to seeing some of your comments or questions. If you want to reach out to us, hit us up at wild med updates on twitter and wilderness medicine updates at gmail.com if you have longer questions or want to throw us some studies to take a look at i also want to hear what are your sticking points what are your pain points in wilderness medicine what are the things you don't understand or that aren't explained well what studies can we break down what techniques can we expand how can we bring you what you really want So with that, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm waiting to hear from you, and I'm ready to address your questions. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay fit, stay focused, stay ready, and have fun.